1921, the Cunard Liner Company commissioned the building of a new ship to replace the previous ship that it had had and been sunk during World War I. In 1922, the Laconia was launched and went into service as a luxury ship for the rich and the famous of Europe and the world, cruising mostly through the Mediterranean. With the outbreak of the war in 1939, shortly thereafter, the Laconia was commissioned into the Royal Merchant Navy to serve as a troop carrier, moving troops throughout the battle zones of the world in service of the British Empire. In the summer of 1942, she had recently completed a trip from England to the bottom end of the Suez Canal, north of the Gulf, and north of the Indian Ocean. Having deposited there, she was due to make a return trip round the Cape of Good Hope back to the United Kingdom. To help her make this journey, she needed ballast. So she was given 1,800 prisoners of war from the Italian army who had been captured in the battles in Egypt. They were to be transported to prisoner of war camps here in the United Kingdom. She was also carrying women and children who had been evacuated from Singapore following the collapse of that city under British control to the Japanese earlier in the year. She set sail through the Indian Ocean, travelling down the eastern seaboard of Africa, rounding the, great, uh, sorry, rounding the Cape of Good Hope and making the journey through the South Atlantic, eventually heading towards the North Atlantic in England. At the time, the U-boat fleet of Hitler's Third Reich was patrolling in the North Atlantic. Because of limited supply range and limited ability to carry supplies with them in the U-boats, they had been pretty much restricted up to that point to the North Atlantic. But unbeknownst to the Allies, they had developed a new method of line of supply and new ways of transporting supplies and goods onto the U-boats. Consequently, as the Laconia rounded the Cape of Good Hope and travelled into the South Atlantic, she headed towards a wolf pack that was waiting for merchant ships. With bad coal in her boilers and black, coal, black smoke rather, coming from her funnels, she was easily spotted in the horizon by U-boat 156. Slowly, the wolf ship, the U-boat, began making his prey more available to him. And on the 12th of September 1942, just after 8pm, while, while the passengers on the Laconia wined and dined and danced in the great hall of that ship, a torpedo flew through the water, hitting the forward bow and the ship below the bow line, below the water line. Taking on water, the Laconia immediately ordered an evacuation of the ship. A torpedo fired from the third torpedo tube of U-boat 156 plowed into the rear end of the ship and it began taking more water on board. And at 8.43, she slipped beneath the waves somewhere between Asuncion and the west coast of Africa. She carried more than 2,600 souls, but nearly 2,000 of them had escaped. Most of the Italians in the hold could not, and many of them drowned with the ship. The captain, his first in command, and the radio operators stood by their posts as the ship slipped beneath the darkness of the waves. Hearing nothing in response to the multitudinous signals for help that they sent out in distress. U-Boat 156 was under the command of a Captain Hartenstein who had only ever wanted to be in the Navy. He had enrolled in 1928 as an 18-year-old man and had gradually worked his way through the ranks, finally achieving the status as captain of a U-boat and serving in the Kriegsmarine. 
It was his first commission that far south. The first time he'd taken one of his U-boats beyond the equator. But not the first time he had sunk a ship. For sinking the 20,000 ton Laconia, to date the largest prize that he had ever taken as a U-boat captain, he would receive from Admiral Donitz and the German High Command, the Knight's Cross, in recognition of his service to the Germans. But for some reason, Hartenstein refused to leave. The ship came came above water, the boat came above water, and began cruising towards the sunken liner. The attempt was to try and rescue soldiers and officers, particularly officers, in order to obtain information and intelligence from them that could be useful to the war effort. But as the boat became closer to the wreckage, as the fires indicated to them where their target had once lain, they moved closer and realized that what they were hearing was not the cries of sailors, but of women and children. They began to realize that there were some 2,000 souls located in the water. And in an uncommon gift of human generosity, of the spirit of man that is unconquerable in the face of evil and yet can rise to the heights of goodness. Hartenstein began rescuing those who had been shipwrecked. The boats that were not nearly enough to take all those who were drowning in the water and sharks were consuming. Those who were in lifeboats were taken and they were daisy-chained onto the back of the U-boat. Others were brought onto the ship. The sickest and the most injured were placed inside the U-boat itself and given as best medical treatment as they could and many others were left straddled on top of the deck of the boat. A signal was sent to Paris and Berlin asking Donitz what should happen to these people. No response came back. And eventually Captain Hartenstein risked the crew and his own life by sending out a general signal to all who could hear. I have sunk the Laconia. I have rescued many of the passengers who are now in boats, lifeboats that are daisy-chained onto my ship. I am bearing the Red Cross and I will not attack any ship that comes to rescue them. His signal went unheeded and decisions were still not being made at the high command in Paris or Berlin. Eventually an aircraft a B-24 Liberator from the island of Sassuncian and the recently established secret airbase set out on a regular patrol, perhaps alerted by the British of the Laconia to try and find and see if there were any survivors, but was not informed of the plans of Hartenstein to return those who had been rescued to their original country. When it saw not one but four U-boats who had come to the help of Hartenstein to relieve the demands that were placed on him for water supplies and even space by those who were surviving the, the shipwreck, it began a bombing run. Two of the lifeboats were destroyed at the loss of a hundred lives and the other U-boats scattered. Recognizing the danger that he had placed both himself and his crew in, as well as his boat, Hartenstein cut the, the, the daisy chain and released the lifeboats to the mercy of the South Atlantic. Those who were on board the ship were offloaded into the lifeboats so that there was barely an inch between anybody who was located on them. He notified them that word had been received that the Gloire, a ship from the, the French Merchant Navy stationed in West Africa, from the Vichy French, was on its way. Stay where you are. We've given them your location. And an uncommon sign of gratitude to a person, everyone who had been rescued, thanked Captain Hartenstein and his crew. 
Never since December the 25th, 1914, had such an act been seen between Allies and Axis powers, when soldiers of that war crossed into no man's land and played each other at football. It would never happen again in the course of the war. Donitz's reply in response to the Laconia incident was to issue a decree to all U-boat commanders, do not go near anything that you sink. Do not attempt to rescue anybody. Remember that you are German. Remember that we are at war. Remember that the Allies are bombing our cities and killing our women and children. They were doing the same to us, of course. But in the moment of the madness of the war of 1942, a man displayed an uncommon gift of love towards his fellow humans. In the spring of 1943, while on patrol in U-156 in the West Indies, Allied ships spotted, bombed and sank Hartenstein's boat and all his crew. There were no reported survivors. But for those who remembered him, for those who had encountered to him, for those who have survived even to this day, they said, we were sad to hear that he had died. In Luke chapter 12, and beginning in verses 4 and 5, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offences should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant ploughing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will you not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all these things which you were commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve stretched forth their hands and they ate of the forbidden fruit. In doing so, they sinned against God. They received the penalties and the curses that God issued in that third chapter and they were condemned for their crime against him. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. They were sentenced to death and in due time they received the reward for their, their offence. And who here on this first day of the week sits in this building and says, I am worthy to go to heaven? Who here says that anyone, can any one of us truly say that we are deserving in and of ourselves of the mercy of God. Jesus warned us that we should fear God. Not just fear those who may have the power of death over our lives, 
that fear him who can cast us into hell and can give us the just reward that we deserve because in our sins we abandon God and forsook him and deserve the penalty that he offered. But in his grace, God came to us who were shipwrecked. He came to us who were lost at the sea. He came to us who were without hope and without the promise of salvation. He came to us when we were nothing. And he offered us deliverance. For those who had experienced the sinking of the Laconia, like many others like them who suffered the same tragedies throughout the war and in subsequent events or events prior to that time, what despair, what tragedy, what grief must come upon people to realize that someone has lost at sea. What fear and dread must be upon their soul to think of themselves without the sight of any salvation whatsoever. To consider the hopelessness of our circumstances. However, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He sent his ship to rescue those who were perishing. He sent his boat to offer salvation to those who would otherwise be lost forever. He sent his captain, the author and the finisher of our faith, to bring us the hope of life. Of this, the Hebrew writer says in chapter 6, verse 4, that we have tasted of a heavenly gift. For some it is too much and they have turned their back on us, as the context of Hebrews 6 has said. But for those of us who have come here today, we have come here to worship that which is God's heavenly gift. That which we neither expected nor asked for, but came to us nonetheless. When Jesus met the woman at the well, in John chapter 4 verse 10, he said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What anticipation there is in our lives when we realize that we're going to get a gift, perhaps on a Christmas day, perhaps on a birthday, perhaps just because someone wants us to have a gift. And we know it's coming and we expect it and we anticipate it and we're filled with the thrill of what may be underneath that colourful paper in which it has been wrapped. And we pull away at it and we see the gift and we see the joy in the person's faith who is the face of that person who has received that gift. And the joy it gives to us. And God sent his Son as a gift from heaven. In his justice, he cast man from the garden. In his mercy he spared them from the punishment of death that he deserved for his sin in the garden. And in his grace and because of his love he gave a gift that would allow man to return into the presence of God. In Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse 15 Paul there says to us But the free gift is not like the offence for if by the one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offence death reigned over, uh, death reigned through the one, much more those 
who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through the man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. God looked upon humanity and recognized our needs He recognized our weaknesses. He recognized our failings. And he offered us the only thing that could bring hope back to us. He looked to us in our despair and in the darkness of sin. And he offered us hope and light. He looked at us in our hatred and in our bitterness and in our strife. And he offered us forgiveness and salvation and redemption. He looked to us in our pathetic state without him. And he offered us a glorious state with him. An abounding gift that God has offered to us. An abounding gift that God offers to all humanity. As John would say in 1 John 2 verse 2, He is not only the propitiation, this gift for our sins, but for the whole world's. And God's plan is not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Hartenstein surfaced and began to make his manoeuvres towards the shipwreck, he had one thought in his mind. To serve humanity. When he looked through the periscope and saw that plume of dark smoke in the horizon, he had one thought in his mind. 20,000 tons of glory. But when he saw the despair of the people in the water... He did no longer think of the highest award that the German Reich could give him of the Knight's Cross. But he thought of the highest award that any sailor can ever receive. The salvation of another soul lost at sea. And God, in his love and as an enduring mercy, looked upon us and offered us the greatest of all gifts. The chance to be with him. The chance to be redeemed. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, as Paul addresses not only the significance of God's grace and love, but also for the church and the importance of the church, he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God's gift to us is not just a grace that allows us to be with him. It is a grace that speaks volumes of who he really is. It's a grace that tells us much about his love and his generosity and his care and his provision for us who are his people. In chapter 3 and verse 7, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. A grace that God gives to us that not only gives us the chance to be with him and to serve him and to love him, but to want to do so. To desire that presence of him in our lives. To have that thrill in our lives of worshipping him in the first day of the week. To have that joy that comes from serving him. And as Jesus taught his disciples to cast aside offences and to demonstrate what forgiveness really is. In chapter 4 and verse 7 Paul says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And who sits here on this first day of the week worshipping God and calls himself Christian, and who has not received the measure of Christ's gift. And what difference does that gift make to your life? 
What difference does that gift make to your language? What difference does that gift make to your behavior? In James chapter 1 and verse 17, James wants us to remember that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, in the context of that grace, that gift of grace that he has given us, he says that we are created to be his workmanship. And so we, like like putty or clay in the hands of the potter, are to be molded into the image that God intends for us, that we are to become supple to his will, that we are to become molded into the shape that he desires us to be. The clay doesn't decide this for itself. It's decided by other factors. It's decided by the hands that are brought against it, by the friction that's applied to it, by the water that is poured over it, by the grace of the potter upon it. And so it becomes what the potter intends. And so we, having received this gift of God's grace, must also submit to His will for our lives to become what He wants us to be. To realize that when God opened up the floodgates of heaven and poured forth all that heaven could give to us for our salvation, when it placed the most beautiful and the darling of heaven, that firstborn of all, who should be the preeminent amongst us all, and nailed Him to a cross, He did so because he wants us to have the very best that he can give to us. And in doing so, he asks nothing more of us than he asked of himself. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God who gave his son, nailed him to a cross, held him there by love, put him there as a sacrifice to atone for our sins, that we might go to heaven, that we might live for God, that we might dwell in his church. He placed him on a cross, battered and bruised and beaten, flesh torn from his body, his blood pouring forth and mixing with the dirt of the ground. And God says to us, you will go to hell over my dead body. I will not allow it. But it's your choice. I have done all that I can for you. But I want you to know with an absolute certainty, those who go to hell go there over my dead body. And Christ with arms outstretched upon a cross bars the way to hell. Himself is the warning to all who might go past that cross and instead asks them to stay to embrace it 
and to experience the gift of God to us all. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15 Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The story of the Laconia was on the BBC in just the last few days. Last night, they had interviews with the very few remaining survivors from that incident in 1942. Not one of them had a bad thing to say about Captain Hartenstein. Not one of them would hear a bad word about him or his crew. And he'd sunk their ship. He'd killed their friends. He had risked their lives who survived. And to repeat what that one man had said, I was rather sad to hear that he had died. In Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Noah built an ark to save what was left of humanity that God would grant grace to that it might ride out the storms of the seas that would rise at the bidding of God in the days before the flood and as a consequence of the flood. But only those who were on the boat were saved. For those who were picked up by Hartenstein, most of them survived. For those of us who have taken the hand of God that has reached into the despair and the tragedy of our lives. He has brought us aboard his boat, his church, his son's body, and he has told us that it is an indescribable gift. God bless you.